Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Klingt die Musik in deinen Ohren? Dann geht es dir wie uns. Bei Airbus bauen wir nicht einfach nur Flugzeuge. Wir haben eine Mission, das heute mit dem Morgen zu verbinden. Du willst ein Teil davon werden? Das ist deine Chance. Wir suchen motivierte MitarbeiterInnen in vielen Bereichen. Jetzt bewerben unter airbus.com jobs und gemeinsam mit uns abheben. Ready for takeoff? Hello, today I'm in the USA, in Princeton, New Jersey to be precise, a place that's hosted some of the greatest scientific minds of our time. My guest is one of them. The physicist behind M-theory, a leading contender for what is commonly referred to as the theory of everything, one that combines the two current mathematical descriptions of the physical universe, quantum mechanics and Einstein's theory of gravity. Edward Witten is Professor Emeritus in the School of Natural Sciences at the Institute for Advanced Study, just down the road from here. Einstein was one of its first professors and J. Robert Oppenheimer, its longest-serving director. Over a career that spans some of the most exciting periods in modern theoretical physics, Edward Witten has become known as the originator of many significant ideas and breakthroughs in our current understanding of the nature of reality itself. So hold on to your hats, people. But even he has his challenges. A fascination since his student days has been the problem of quark confinement, a subject that still eludes our full understanding even today. Don't worry, we will come to that. In the meantime, his attitude to finding fresh answers remains resolutely pragmatic. He says the hardest part of research is always to find a question that's big enough that it's worth answering, but little enough that you actually can answer it. Edward Witten, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you so much for the invitation today. Now, you say little enough to be able to answer, but I mentioned quark confinement in the introduction there and how it's something of a white whale for you personally. We'll talk about it more, but do you want to just lay out very simply what that problem is? Nowadays, we believe that strongly interacting particles like the proton and neutron, the building blocks of atomic nuclei, are made out of more fundamental entities called quarks. But we never see an individual quark. Both real experiments and computer simulations strongly suggest that what's happening is that if you try to separate a quark from the rest of the proton or neutron, the energy grows and grows, and you never get there, no matter how much energy you start with. But this has never been fully demonstrated. It was a new idea when I was a graduate student. I started graduate school in September of 1973. So it was a fresh idea, and to be honest with you, it sounded completely crazy, given what was known at the time. So as a student, I was completely obsessed with it. But it was too hard. So since I couldn't make progress with that, I did what I could do. What else can we do in life except to do whatever we can do? <laughs> so I worked on smaller problems and eventually accepted the fact that I couldn't understand the quark confinement problem. And as you've remarked, actually, it's still not fully understood today. And it was more than 20 years before I was able to make even a modest contribution. And doing that required all kinds of things that weren't known in my student days. Mm. I know you've previously talked about the importance of being pragmatic in, in research and not getting too hung up on preconceptions about what you're aiming to do to achieve. Why do you think that's good advice? If you have too much of a preconception about what you should do next, you'll almost always be wrong. 
First, if you've picked something which is hard enough, it will usually be too hard because it's very difficult to find the right mix of things that are exciting without being too hard. But secondly, if you have too much of a preconception and you're not pragmatic, you simply won't notice the areas that are most ripe for progress. Of course, you could argue that Einstein didn't follow the dictum I've stated. When he was inventing his theory of gravity, his greatest achievement, he had a preconception which he stuck to for years. And he triumphed in the end. But that was Einstein. (laughs) Not everyone's Einstein. I mean, you've been called one of the most brilliant minds of your generation and and a worthy successor to Einstein even. How do you feel about those sorts of comments? Uh, I don't take that kind of stuff too seriously. (laughs) I knew I'd get a short answer from you because I know you're uncomfortable about it. Well, Edward Witten, let me take you back to the beginning. You were born in August 1951 into a Jewish family in Baltimore, in Maryland. What was your childhood like? Well, I would say on the whole, it was a happy childhood with a couple of younger siblings and a third sibling who was born when I was 14. My father is a theoretical physicist. He's actually still doing well at the age of 102. (laughs) And my mother was, at that time, taking care of the family, but she had had some scientific interests. She had majored in biology in college. Those were the days of the space race, so everybody was excited about space, and I was too. From about the age of seven, I thought I would be an astronomer. And that continued to be my thinking for quite a few years. I was given a small telescope, and one of the highlights of my childhood was seeing the rings of Saturn through it. You say your father was, and still is, a theoretical physicist at the age of 102. Do you and he still talk about current ideas in physics? We do occasionally, but less so in the last few years. When he was 99, he told me that he wasn't going to be actively writing physics papers so much anymore. (laughs) Hang up his hat at last. He was the one who introduced me to calculus when I was 11. So I told you that I'd been totally preoccupied with astronomy until then. But after the age of 11, I thought maybe I'd be a mathematician. And possibly that would have happened if I'd been exposed to more advanced math in those years. But my parents were a little bit reluctant to push me too far too fast. So you enjoyed math at school and science, physics in particular. But in fact, you were good at a range of subjects. And at 18, you went to Brandeis University to study history. That's a bit of a surprise. Uh, Well, it's a bit of a surprise to me also in hindsight. And (laughs) the only real explanation I can give of why it happened is that sometimes the choices made by young people are inscrutable. I will make one remark, though, which is that the system in the U.S. is more flexible than many other countries, making it possible, difficult but possible, to make the kind of change I later made when a few years later I realized that history wasn't really the right direction for me. But, of course, it wasn't just the jump from history to physics because I gather you're also, in your student days, writing articles for newspapers. You even worked on George McGovern's 1972 presidential campaign for six months. And you started a postgrad at the University of Michigan in economics. What sort of career were you envisaging for yourself at that point? I considered a variety of things, but eventually I had the sense to realize that my talents were in math and physics and anything else would be frustrating. Well, as you say, Edward Witten, in 1973, you did decide then to move over to physics. You went to Princeton University to do an MA in applied maths and then a PhD in physics. As we're going to come to, the early 70s were an incredibly fruitful period of discovery in physics. But you, having arrived with an undergraduate degree in history, a semester of graduate economics, how difficult was that transition to theoretical physics? Of course, I learned as much as I could before I started graduate school in physics in September of 73. But nevertheless, the first year was very difficult work to catch up. By the end of the year, I'd caught up, not in the sense that I knew everything, but in the sense that I knew as much as my fellow graduate students did. Right. (laughs) And it turned out that the fall of 74 was a period of astonishing discovery. 
One of the biggest discoveries in experimental physics was made that fall, the discovery of a new particle called the J-Psi. This was a big deal because it was interpreted as the discovery of a fourth quark, and it served as a dramatic confirmation of the standard model of particle physics, which had been put in its final form only the previous year. And to my good fortune, after a year of hard work, I was just in time to be able to understand what was happening when the J-Psi was discovered. I mean, we should say the standard model of particle physics is essentially a, an umbrella term that brings together the current theories of the subatomic world, you know, yes, of, that's of, right. of the quantum world, describing the basic building blocks of the universe. The J-Psi particle was another piece in the jigsaw, it but was, it wasn't the final one. Well, the standard model explains the nuclear force in terms of quarks as well as gluons that hold them together. That led to the mystery of quark confinement, which obsessed me in my student days. But the discovery of the J-Psi was interpreted as a new quark, where the underlying quarkiness, if you want to call it that, was much more visible than it was for previous particles. So it was a very dramatic confirmation of the then-new theory of the nuclear force. You mentioned earlier that the problem of quark confinement is that you don't see these particles, quarks, in isolation. They always exist in in pairs or triplets inside other particles. The J-psi is not like a proton or a neutron. It only has two quarks, rather a quark and its antimatter partner. The new quark was much heavier than the other ones, and that made the fundamental physics of the strong interactions much more visible. And a few years later, an even heavier quark was discovered, and 20 years later, one still heavier was discovered. So ultimately, in those ways and many other ways, the theory had abundant confirmation. But the discovery in October 74 was dramatic, well, and of course, I thought maybe that was the life of a theoretical physicist, but it turns out... You thought it was, your whole career was going to be just like that. It turns out it doesn't happen every year. Right. Well, by 1976, you'd completed your PhD, and you moved to Harvard to take up a research fellowship. And that's where you ended up working with your future wife, Kiara, who'd started her research fellowship at the same time. It was also at Harvard that you really started to explore this interaction between theoretical physics and pure mathematics. When I had been a student, what physics students would learn was very far away from what pure mathematicians were doing or had been doing for quite a few decades. And it seemed like some of that abstract math was totally far removed from the concerns of physicists. But the standard model, as it emerged by the mid-70s, changed the picture. For physicists, it raised new questions, not all of which we could answer. Quark confinement is an extreme case, but there are many other novel questions. And we gradually learned that answering some of these questions required mathematical techniques that we weren't familiar with that gradually brought us closer to the interests of modern mathematicians. And so some senior mathematicians, like Michael Atiyah from your country, who proved to have an important influence in my career, or his longtime colleague Isidore Singer at MIT, they became interested in what was going on in physics. Were you seen as slightly unusual among colleagues venturing into into the world of pure maths? Uh, It was only rather gradually that I started to venture into the world of pure math. And one reason for that is that I was very particular about what I wanted to do. I wanted to understand quark confinement. And I was skeptical that mathematicians could help with that. And in fact, uh, from the vantage point of 45 years later, I haven't been disproved. (laughs) So (laughs) gradually, my horizons expanded. I had to work on other things, and some of the things I could work on had interesting mathematical connections. Well, by 1980, Edward, you decided it was time to move from Harvard, and that September you accepted a position of Professor of Physics at Princeton and moved back to New Jersey. Around this time, you wrote a physics paper that also had a real impact in the abstract world of pure mathematics. 
perhaps my first paper that was really memorable and influential mathematically was the one on Morse theory. In the early 80s, I was very interested in a new physics theory called supersymmetry, which attempts to explain a new level of structure in the world of elementary particles. And there was something very strange about supersymmetric theories and the properties of the vacuum. I know to most of your listeners, you think that the vacuum is just nothingness. But in modern physics, understanding the vacuum is one of the most difficult parts of a theory. Anyway, there was a puzzle about the vacuum in supersymmetric theories that I couldn't understand. And I kept looking at simpler and simpler models, and no matter how simple the model was, it still had the same basic puzzle. And finally, I came to what seemed like the most simple model of all, a model that seemed so simple I had to be able to understand it. And one day in the summer of 1982, actually when I was in a swimming pool in Aspen, I suddenly remembered a lecture I'd heard by the mathematician Raul Bott three years earlier about Morse theory. And it struck me that Morse theory was the key to what I was grappling with in the physics theory. You could also, though, turn that around and say that you could use the physics theory to give a new explanation of Morse theory. So the physics helps inform a better understanding of the mathematics and vice versa. And the paper you wrote really got you noticed in both worlds, didn't it? Uh, Probably there's some truth in that. (laughs) Reluctance, acceptance. And so we come to string theory, uh, a topic that became hugely important to you. And of course, we can't say yet that this does remain the leading contender for a theory that combines all four forces of nature, brings gravity into the quantum fold. In the most simple terms, it's the idea that elementary particles aren't point-like but are extended strings or loops that can vibrate. But I think you've got a rather more elegant musical analogy. I like to make an analogy with a piano string or a violin string. A piano or violin string can resonate or vibrate with many different shapes of vibration corresponding to different tones. There's a basic tone and there are higher overtones. The richness and beauty of music have to do with the interplay of the different harmonics. A tuning fork, to a very good approximation, produces a pure tone. It sounds harsh to the human ear. Now, in the kind of strings that I study, they can also vibrate in many different shapes and forms. The different shapes and forms of vibration of one of those strings are realized as different elementary particles. A quark, an electron, a muon, a neutrino, a photon, a graviton. The different particles are interpreted as different modes of vibration of a string or different harmonics, similar to the different tones of a violin string. So the way unification is achieved is that all the different particles and the quanta of all the different forces are different forms of vibration of the same basic string. In the 1980s, Edward, this idea of string theory was really only being taken seriously by a small group of physicists. And although it intrigued you, I gather you were reluctant to get too involved back then because of a couple of issues that you saw with it. My colleagues, Michael Green, John Schwartz and Lars Brink, and very, very few others, were developing the theory in the early 80s. And it was incredibly fascinating. At the same time, two things caused me to hesitate to get seriously involved. One was simply that it seemed like such a big program that it would probably take 100 years to understand it, even if it was right. Now, (laughs) with uh, 41 of those 100 years under our belts, roughly, it looks like I wasn't entirely wrong on that one. (laughs) But there was something else, which was a more technical difficulty that I pointed out to Green and Schwartz, which is that if you look at an ordinary object in a mirror, you see its mirror image which looks like something that could exist even if it doesn't actually exist. You know that if you worked hard enough, you could make the mirror image of whatever you're seeing in the mirror. However, in modern times, physicists discovered that the laws of nature are not completely mirror symmetric. But the lack of mirror symmetry in nature is very special 
it's tied to the handedness of the spin of the elementary particles. So roughly clockwise or anticlockwise yeah. spin. Certain yeah. particles spin clockwise, certain spin anticlockwise, and that's correlated with their other quantum numbers in a way that was impossible to achieve in string theory, the way string theory was understood in 1982 and 83. So I pointed this problem out to the people working on the subject. I also nibbled around at the edges of it a little bit. But in the summer of 1984, Michael Green and John Schwartz made a breakthrough where they discovered technically a new kind of anomaly cancellation, and suddenly there wasn't a problem with the handedness of the elementary particles. And after that, I never hesitated, seriously. That was known as the, the first string theory revolution, wasn't it? Yes, although I disagree with the terminology. I think the period around 1970, before I was even started graduate school, should have been called the first revolution. And then the green shorts breakthrough and the things that followed from it would have been called the second superstring revolution. The work in the, the 70s, the ideas, the mathematics were being used not to unify all the forces of nature, but they were trying to understand one of the particular forces, the strong force. Yes, string theory developed around 1970 by physicists who were trying to understand the nuclear force. So when they studied their equations better, they found it didn't quite work for the nuclear force. And one reason it didn't work was that there was this annoying massless particle traveling at the speed of light and looking like the quantum of Einstein's gravitational field. The physicists who discovered that didn't like it because they were trying to describe the nuclear force. They wrote dozens of papers trying to get rid of it and failed. Eventually, some colleagues in the 70s said, well, okay, we have another theory of the nuclear force by now. It was part of the standard model. But we don't have a theory of gravity. And since string theory forces upon us an object with all the properties of the quantum of Einstein's gravitational field, why not take that seriously? That was an incredible idea that an incredibly large number of physicists did not take seriously. <laughs> and it wasn't until the breakthrough made by Green and Schwartz in the summer of 1984 that a larger community of physicists came to take it seriously. You, of course, were, were one of them. It paved the way for you to write a couple of papers on string theory that were well-received, established you in this new conversation. But by 1988, I gather you were open to doing something else. This was where your relationship with Michael Attia, the mathematician whose work you'd been introduced to back at Harvard, prompted a major breakthrough. So Atiyah visited Princeton a couple of times, and he was recommending a couple of problems for physicists. One was to understand the Jones polynomial of a knot in physical terms. I'd never heard of the Jones polynomial. Your listeners all know about knots. We're all familiar with either knots we tie intentionally and also with knotted pieces of string, which can be frustratingly hard to unknot. Less familiar might perhaps be the fact that in the 20th century, mathematicians developed an amazingly deep theory of knots, where a knot is idealized as a loop of string embedded in ordinary three-dimensional space and possibly twisted and tangled up. And in knot theory, one wants to decide if two tangles are equivalent and if one can be untangled. There was an amazing theory of this subject, but it left a lot of mysteries. And Vaughan Jones, a mathematician from New Zealand, had discovered a remarkable way to compare knots and to understand them mathematically in about 1983. But Atiyah was dissatisfied with all of the explanations of the Jones polynomial, because none of them fully explained the symmetry. In all cases, you broke the knot up into pieces, studied the pieces individually, and then you put the equations back together, and there was some magic, some hocus-pocus, in the fact that it all worked. He wanted a more natural explanation. And eventually, after some twists and turns, I did discover a more natural interpretation by thinking of the knot as the path followed by a charged particle in a three-dimensional space-time, a world of two space, one-time dimensions, rather than our own world of four space-time dimensions. These charged particles are governed by equations that are very similar to the equations of the standard model, but simpler. 
And it turns out that you could give a natural explanation of the Jones polynomial. Probably that's one of the things I've done that had the biggest impact in math and also a decent amount of impact in physics. Certainly that paper you published on knot theory goes some way to explaining why you became the first physicist to be awarded a Fields Medal by the International Mathematical Union for your maths insights in physics. That medal, if listeners aren't aware of it, is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for mathematics. I mean, that must have been a huge honour for you. Well, it's a huge honour and a complete surprise. It wouldn't have occurred to me that I'd be considered for that, to be honest with you. (laughs) It's not the sort of thing that physicists ever imagine being awarded because it is, as I say, very much aimed at pure mathematicians. Yes, indeed. In 1987, Edward, you became professor in the School of Natural Sciences at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. You've now been there for 35 years. It must be a very special place for you. Well, it's a very nice atmosphere to work. There are very few responsibilities. All one has to do is one's research. And one's colleagues, both the senior faculty and also the young researchers who spend a couple of years there, are among the best in the field usually. So there's lots of stimulation. Well, it was at the Institute for Advanced Study that you started working with a colleague, Nathan Seiberg, looking at the mathematical connection or or, or symmetries between different forces in in quantum theory. This led to what became known as the Seiberg-Witten theory. Can you, in simple terms, explain what that means? As I mentioned earlier, while to listeners you might think that the vacuum is nothing, understanding the nature of the vacuum in quantum theory is quite a mystery. And Nathan and I took a new paradigm of understanding the vacuum by piecing together different descriptions. And mathematically, it actually led to progress in understanding four-dimensional spaces, which are a big subject mathematically as well as physically. So therefore, cyber-written theory became influential mathematically. But physically, this was what finally gave me the chance to say just a little bit about quark confinement, because we actually were able to get a new understanding in the class of theories we were looking at. And it was a good lesson. So I'd been obsessed with quark confinement 20 years before, could say practically nothing. To say something interesting took a 20-year wait, and our work required all kinds of things discovered in the interim, so it would have been hopeless to do when I was a student what Cyberg and I did in 1994. Well, it was that work with Cyberg that laid the groundwork for a key point, not only in, in your career, Edward, but in string theory as a whole. Up to this point, physicists working on string theory had developed by now five different consistent versions of the theory. But which one was the correct theory of everything, they didn't know. Then in 1995, you went to speak at a conference at the University of Southern California and you made a suggestion that surprised a lot of people. It turned out that there aren't really five different string theories. The five different string theories are different limiting cases of one overarching theory. In different physical situations, one description or another is more useful. But fundamentally, there's only one theory, which is the candidate for superunification, what we came to call M-theory. So it gave a satisfying answer to at least one deep question, which had been, if one of the five string theories describes the universe, who lives in the other four worlds? (laughs) After 1995, we understood that there really is only one candidate for superunification of the laws of nature. This is what you then packaged up as M-theory. Do you remember the reaction when you presented this at that conference? I'd say that there was a lot of interest, some befuddlement. So it was a mixed reaction, but in general, people were interested from the beginning. That was the dawn of another really exciting period of progress for theoretical physics. It became known as the second string theory revolution. How do you feel about the role you played in that? Do you ever sort of reflect on that? So there was a dramatic period of discovery for a few years, starting in 1995. It built on 
of course, a lot of previous things. But starting in 1995, we were able to make much more rapid progress for a few years. I certainly didn't do everything during those periods, but I did enough that I was satisfied with it. It was understandably a very busy period in your working life. And what we haven't mentioned is that at this point you had three kids, two daughters and a son. How hard was it balancing home life with your career? It was challenging at times. The, the kids kept us busy. And more recently, the grandchildren keep us busy. But, <laughs> but you find time to do a bit of physics yes, in, we do in, our in best. between. Yes. <laughs> in 1997, some groundbreaking work by Juan Meldesena, which is now one of the most highly cited papers in the history of physics, showed a connection, what is called a duality, between two ideas linking gravity and curved space in certain rather abstract situations to the quantum world of subatomic particles and fields. You wrote a paper expanding on this relationship, and a few months later, using that work, you were finally able to explain more about your white whale, quark confinement. So Juan Modesena had this extremely bold and slightly wild conjecture. He considered these objects in string theory that we call brains, with an A, A A-N-E, they create a gravitational field. And there's a space-time that you could describe in terms of the fields created by the brains. Modestan had this incredible idea that the quantum theory of the brains was completely equivalent to the gravitational theory in the world that they create. Now, there weren't a very precise set of rules for calculation, but that was supplied a few months later, in part by me, in part by a competing paper by Gobser, Klebanov, and Polyakov that came out the same week. And it had a huge impact. There are all kinds of things you could do for the first time. And as I soon observed, one of the things that you could calculate that you couldn't calculate before was the force between quarks, not in the real world of the nuclear force, but in a simplified world with somewhat similar equations, which enabled us to concretely understand quark confinement in various simplified versions of the problem. But there's still a lot we don't understand, and we're in need of another breakthrough. Back in 1981, as another incredibly productive era seemed to be crossing the T's, dotting the I's, Stephen Hawking wrote a famous article suggesting the end of theoretical physics was nigh. Given your concerns decades ago that string theory could take a century, what do you think now? Are we finally approaching a theory of quantum gravity, a theory of everything that we can all agree is the right one, or are we still decades away? It's very hard to know how close we are, in part because we don't know what the answer is. It's entirely possible that string-slash-M theory is, in some sense, the fundamental theory of nature. But we really don't understand what it means. In fact, understanding what it means would be my biggest passion if it were achievable. I just, as far as I know, it's not achievable right now. But the sharp contrast is with Einstein, who had the conception behind his theory before he had the theory. Instead, string theory has been discovered bit by bit for now over a half a century. And we have no idea how long the journey is to go. I remember writing years ago, trying to explain in a popular science book that uh, string theory or super string theory is a theory in 10 dimensions, nine of space and one of time. And I say, and then Edward Witten comes along and says, guys, give me one more dimension and I'll bring them all together. That's all I want. That's that's the price to pay. We've gone from 10 to 11 dimensions. So who knows? Maybe one day a 12th dimension will come along and solve all our problems. Watch this space. Edward Witten, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. My pleasure. Klingt die Musik in deinen Ohren? Dann geht es dir wie uns. Bei Airbus bauen wir nicht einfach nur Flugzeuge. Wir haben eine Mission, das Heute mit dem Morgen zu verbinden. Du willst ein Teil davon werden? Das ist deine Chance. 
Wir suchen motivierte MitarbeiterInnen in vielen Bereichen. Jetzt bewerben unter airbus.com jobs und gemeinsam mit uns abheben. Ready for takeoff?